Let me take you back to 1943. I was eight years old, and it was in the middle of World War II. Just like COVID, we couldn't go anywhere. There were no lights on, you could do nothing, but there were local events. And I was entered into an 80-yard race, a sprint, and I won the race. Of course, I had my secret weapon. I had Foster's spike shoes, and nobody else had even heard of spike running shoes. So I won, and I, I went up to pick up my prize. What did I get? The living legend, Joe Foster, is the co-founder of Reebok. The one and only Joe Foster. We have Joe Foster, founder of Reebok. Welcome to the Redefined podcast brought to you by The One Club, the world's first invite-only digital private members club. The ambition of this podcast is to explore the untold stories of entrepreneurs, athletes, influencers, and more. How are you, Joe? <laughs> I'm just checking. This is okay? Right. <laughs> right. Gordon, thank you for the invitation. No, it's, it's, great. it's yes. great. I'm really looking forward to this, actually. Yeah. It's really nice to be here. Yeah. And uh, it's nice to be a member of this one club. It's a fantastic idea. I hope anybody here who isn't a member, you should check it out. I'll tell you. Networking? Oh, brilliant. And uh, you'll enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, we, we have been picked, Julie and my, myself, my, we have been picked up by many clubs but this is this is something special and uh, and we're really pleased to be here tonight yeah no and we're pleased to have you here so i mean i guess the first question i'd love to ask is um how did the name reebok come to be reebok well <clears throat> we're obviously starting halfway through the story but it's, it's a good part um the story started with my grandfather. My grandfather, he, uh, he invented the spike running shoe. And when I get back to where my grandfather had a wonderful uh, career. He, uh, he developed a wonderful brand. And uh, he understood uh, probably being an entrepreneur, mainly an influencer. He was a great influencer. But uh, his company, which he started, believe it or not, in 1895, Almost died with him, but his sons took on the role. He died in 1933, <clears throat> and I wasn't born until 1935, which is still a long time ago, I know. You don't know that. Uh, you it don't is know a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I was born 18 months, uh, 15 months after he died, but I was born on his birthday. So that happening, my grandmother, she just insisted... I brought my name with me. So I was called after him, Joseph William Foster. So I continued the business. But when he died, his sons took on the business, my uncle and my father. And whatever my grandfather had, they didn't. And they just fought. We didn't know this as kids, but when we grew up, we joined the company. And... Uh, we used to have national service, so at 18, I went off uh, to do my national service, and my brother Jeff, although he's two years older, we went at the same time. Mm. <clears throat> and you know, you just left the family, and this is the first time you're away from mother who did everything for you. You start to learn a little about self-sufficiency, looking after yourself, being independent. Well, we came back after two years, and we came back to a failing company. J.W. Foster and Sons had a fantastic business with my grandfather. But my, I, I don't know whether two world wars actually killed them off. They had no spirit to carry on. But the, the family, that company was going down, it was failing. 
So Jeff and myself, we had little option but to leave the company. We tried to ask my father, look, you know, we've got to, we've got to improve. Adidas is coming. They had already taken the football boot market. And believe it or not, my grandfather supplied 96 football clubs with training and football boots in the 20s. And those clubs include Man United, Man City, Arsenal, Chelsea, all the top clubs. He supplied them. Where were they when my father and uncle were working? They'd gone. We'd lost it. And we'd lost it to Adidas. <clears throat> so uh, we were left with no option. And uh, so Jeff and myself decided in 1958 to leave the company. And we set up our company as Mercury Sports Footwear. Great, fantastic. 18 months into our business, our accountant said, you're doing well. Great, you'd better register that name. Okay, we were a bit naive. We didn't understand. Register. Why do we need to register? Well, you do, because if somebody else starts making Mercury shoes because they thought Mercury shoes were pretty good, um, you're going to have a problem. So I was told to go and see a patent agent in Manchester, which I did. And he looked up the name Mercury and he came back and said, sorry, Joe. It's already pre-registered with British Shoe Corporation. And British Shoe Corporation were a lot bigger than Reebok, well, than Mercury at that time. So uh, he said, OK, they will sell it to you, but it's for £1,000. We didn't have £1,000. We just set up a whole factory for £250. £1,000 impossible. He said, but you can take them to court because they're not using it. And you, you can say, you know... We want this name. Um, and I said, how much will that cost? He said, £1,000. <laughs> oh, OK. No deal. OK, he said. So if you can't, if you can't buy it, uh, you're going to have to bring me an, another name. He said, but not one name. You're going to have to bring me ten names. And I'm thinking, ten names? <clears throat> ten, you know, we, we've got to be in love with this. This is our company. And he pointed through the window. He pointed to Kodak. It was a nice day in May in Manchester, which is not it's pretty rare, that, but uh, it was. And I said, what's with Kodak? He said, well, Kodak, he said, it's a, they made up the name. It's theirs. Nobody can claim it. So, great, make a name, do a name like that. <clears throat> well, I go back and we all sit around the table and we're trying to think of names. Cougar. Cougar Sports. That's a good name, yeah. That's all right. <clears throat> and uh, Merc uh, Falcon. Yeah, Falcon, Falcon Sports. That'd be good. Great, put those down. Now, let me take you back to 1943. I don't know if anybody here remembers that. But in 1943, I was eight years old, and it was in the middle of World War II. And just like COVID, we couldn't go anywhere. There were no lights on, you could do nothing, but there were local events. And I was entered into an 80-yard race, a sprint. And I won the race. Of course, I uh, had my secret weapon. I had Foster's spike shoes, and nobody else had even heard of spike running shoes. So I won anyway. I won, and I, I went up to pick up my prize. What did I get? I got a dictionary. <laughs> I, I'm eight years old. I'm saying, where's the football? Yeah, what can I do? I suppose I could kick a dictionary about, but not as much fun as a ball. So I was pretty disappointed at that. And this was a Webster's dictionary. Probably not many of you know Webster's Dictionary, but a Webster's Dictionary is an American dictionary. So 
a lot of the spellings a little bit different than English. However, I'm disgusted, but my, my dictionary stayed with me somehow. I'm, we come now to 1960, we're looking for a new name, and my dictionary sat by the side there, and uh, I like the letter R. I don't know why. One of those things, I just like the letter R. So I open my Webster's Dictionary at R and start thumbing through. You soon come across R-E. And it was R-E-B-O-K. What's that? It's a small South African gazelle. We're a running company. Gazelle. Fantastic. Put that top of the list. Reebok. I go back to my agent and uh, I give him ten names. And I said, look, we need this one. Reebok. We've got to be in love with it. It's got to be our passion. Uh, but he's a lawyer. I said, okay, see what we can do. Uh, two weeks later, he rang me and said, Joe, you've got your wish. You can have Reebok. However, there's a caveat. The registrar says if anybody starts making shoes out of Reebok skin, <clears throat> you can't stop them. Well, Jeff and I, my brother, we looked at it and said, that's never going to happen. No, that won't happen. <laughs> and, it, and it didn't. <clears throat> so we got Reebok. But because of that, <clears throat> the registrar said, we've got to put you in part B of the register. Only two months earlier, we didn't even know there was a register, so we didn't care. We're, we're in the B section. However, ten years later, the registrar came back and said, uh, we moved you to the A section. <clears throat> okay, why? Well, is it? Everybody now knows that Reebok is a sports shoe and the animal has to come second. Wow, <clears throat> wow that's fascinating, isn't it? Wow, that's a really amazing story. Um, you know, so when you talk about your grandfather's company, um, uh, why did, how did all that come about where you, you, know, you, you joined the company? You talked about that in a little bit more detail. Yeah, well, my grandfather, <clears throat> he, he was a cobbler. His grandfather was a cobbler. That's going back a lot of time, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, my grandfather used to go down to him in Nottingham and uh, learn a bit about cobbling. But at the same time, as, as well as sort of repairing uh, street shoes, he repaired cricket boots. And cricket boots had spikes in the bottom that long ago. They had spikes in the bottom. And uh, my grandfather asked why. The obvious answer, well, it gives them grip. Hmm, good idea. My grandfather was a member of his local Harriers club in Bolton. And uh, he thought, if I make a nice pair of runny shoes and put spikes in the bottom, maybe this will help me. Because grandfather wasn't a good runner. He, was, he enjoyed it, but he was sort of midfield on any event that he entered into. However, made himself a pair of shoes, and although on the first attempt they failed, he did, he did make it good, and he became second in one of the races, which was very unlikely. So most of his teammates were looking at him suspiciously and, yeah, I'll make your shoes. <laughs> so that was the beginning of his business and he started making running shoes. Um, but I, as I mentioned earlier, influencing. Influencing. He gave his shoes to top athletes. And in 1904, a long time ago, Alf Schrub won, broke three world records in his shoes in one event in Glasgow. 1908, grandfather had two gold medals at the Olympics in London. And by 1920, we must remember the second generation, uh, a second decade of the 20th century was World War I. So 
not, not many running shoes. They just repaired army boots. But uh, grandfather's Belle Epoque was the, uh, the 20s, <clears throat> the 1920s. We have a letterhead, and some of you are going to get this uh, today. And on that letterhead, it says in 1920, the Olympic Games in Antwerp, he supplied all the athletes. So that was pretty good. <clears throat> but during the 20s, three, three runners won gold medals. Uh, Harold Abrahams, uh, Eric Liddell, and Lord Burley. They all won gold medals in the 20s. <clears throat> and some of you may have heard of the film Chariots of Fire. Well, that film was about those three athletes, and they all wore Joe Foster's shoes. Amazing. <clears throat> so that was a, a big business. Plus, as I said, on that, on that letterhead, you'll find 96 teams, uh, all the league teams. That you, I think there's only one that's not on it. For me, that's Tottenham Hotspur, and I don't know what, why we weren't supplying <laughs> Tottenham at that time. Um, although I do remember when I worked at uh, Foster's, we did supply Tottenham, but obviously not in the 20s. But all those teams, uh, Rugby League, Rugby Union as well. So it was a tremendous business. So you then, um, Joe, you then leave J.W. Foster and to set up your own company. So tell us a little bit about that journey. <clears throat> well, as I say, the problem is that when Jeff and I joined the business, joined J.W. Foster and Sons, that was okay. We didn't know much. We were teenagers, so you enjoy what normal teenagers do. It's only when we went away and we did national service, um, coming back from national service, that we realised the company's failing. It, they didn't have anybody. They didn't have anybody role. They didn't do any marketing. They did a, bit, a little bit of advertising, but it was failing. And uh, I challenged my father on this. I said, We've got to do something. And he, he wasn't enthusiastic. In fact, he said, "Look, when your uncle goes and I'm, I go, this company will be yours. You can do what you like with it." I said, "Dad, we don't want you to go. That's not the plan." but this company will be gone long before you are. And we've got to do something different, something different. It didn't make any difference. And so Jeff and I, we, we, needed, we needed to change. <clears throat> we went, we also went to shoemaking college. We did this in the evenings. And the best thing about that is that we met a lot of people who were in the shoe industry. So when, after a short while, we decided we needed to leave, it wasn't the fact that we learned more about shoemaking, but we made a lot of friends, a lot of people, a lot of contacts. So when we left, if we had a problem, we just asked them. And uh, we built our small factory. It was in an old brewery in the next town. And the, uh, the top floor, we couldn't use it because the, 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 the roof was just full of holes. And rain was coming in. We just had buckets and tin cans all over the floor. <clears throat> the ground floor, for whatever reason, whether the brewery needs to have no windows, there were no windows, so we couldn't use that. We used the middle floor, which was a bit, bit dodgy, so we put all our machinery around, this, around the edges so that we didn't run the risk of uh, the floor collapsing. But that was our start in, in Berry. And, uh, well, we started with cycle shoes. We didn't want to compete with our parent company. And we did very nicely, but we eventually ended up making running shoes and we started to expand our business. But the one, the one, the one category we couldn't get into was football. That was the big category. And we couldn't get in there because Adidas, they owned it. It would have cost us too much money. 
So we stayed with athletics and we had to grow our company on athletics. <clears throat> the thing about athletics is that uh, all the members of athletic clubs, <clears throat> there's about 400 athletic clubs in, uh, in the UK, and luckily for us, the three A's, Amateur Athletic Association, <clears throat> they produced a handbook. And the secretaries of every club, the name and address, were in the handbook. Great. So I wrote to them. <clears throat> and uh, I offered them 15% off. <clears throat> uh, and if somebody wanted to be an agent, fine, they could get the 15%. I got 100 agents with the first letter. And I got another 50 agents with the second letter. And eventually I ended up with 250 agents. <clears throat> and uh, this was our business. <clears throat> Pre previous to that, though, I had thought, well, <clears throat> I told my father we need to do some promotion, we need to get out on the road. And in those days, every town had about three small sports outfitters. <clears throat> they were usually ex-footballers who ran the business. And I would go around there, I tried to go around there and say, look, I'm Reebok, and uh, they'd look at me and say, who's Reebok? <laughs> uh, okay, who's it? Well, I'd show them the shoes, and they'd say, oh, nice shoes, great, I like it. And then they'd look at the, st the shelves and say, look, I've got Dunlop, <clears throat> I've got Adidas, why do I need Reebok? I must have met that about a dozen times. Why do I need Reebok? Before it dawned on me, they didn't need Reebok. We had to make them need Reebok, and that's when I went to the Athletes Direct. <clears throat> Very shortly after starting our business with the uh, direct trade, I was getting telephone calls from those retailers saying, <clears throat> you're, you're supplying uh, our local athletes. Um, you know, we'll stop your shoes if you'll stop supplying the athletes direct. And I said, no, we're not doing that. Uh, you, can, you would get wholesale prices, which is less than half the price of what, they, uh, what we were selling to the clubs. And will advertise that you are stockists if that's what you do. <clears throat> About 90% of them agreed. They would they would start to. So we're growing nicely, <clears throat> and we're part of the athletic community so much so that all the athletes were buying our product, which was great. And eventually, I was approached by a distributor that we'd like to be your distributor, and uh, I thought, well, that, that's that's pretty good because <clears throat> it'll give me time to do other things, because I knew the running market was good. We, we, in the north of England, we have a lot of rain, so cross-country, fell running. You know, this, this was our market. Um, we called it white space. We were looking for something that nobody else was there, so we were taking those, those markets, <clears throat> which was fantastic, but we could only grow so big. Even with a distributor, we could only grow to a certain size, and not being able to get into uh, football, I turn my attention to America. In America, <clears throat> there are so many universities and colleges that have track teams, and they also have coach. And coach is a god. You can also go to a university on a scholarship. Great, it's a big market. 350 million Americans at that time, and they had great disposable income. We used to look at America as 100, and any comparable market. Japan was about 35, Germany 30, and the UK about 18. So by comparison, that was, that was our market. People say, why didn't you go to Europe? Europe's bigger, got 400 million. But 
25, 28 countries, speaking different languages, different cultures. No, it's too difficult. And added us some Puma with her. So why would we want to go into that space? For us, the white space was America. It was big. They all spoke, well, nearly spoke English. <clears throat> and uh, so that was an attempt. Okay, so I went to the family and said, look, uh, we'd better go to America, see what we can do. And they say, no, you can't afford that. We can't afford to send you to America. Okay. <clears throat> so uh, I'm reading a magazine. I think it was called Eurosport. And in that magazine, the government were advertising that we want you to export. And they wanted us to export to America. This was very fortunate because they said, we will pay for you a stand at the NSGA show. That's the National Sporting Goods of America. We'll pay for the stand, we'll pay for your return airfare, and we'll also pay 50% of your hotel bill. Well, no objections, you can go. <clears throat> so that was it. 1968, <clears throat> I took my first trip to America, Chicago, February. Anybody been to Chicago in February? Cold. You'll know what it's like. <laughs> it's freezing. It's so much below freezing, in fact. Okay, but not to worry. I went with a friend, and we took a, <clears throat> a two-week ticket, so we went to uh, New York first. We looked, uh, I looked at the sports stores. My friend looked at the outdoor stores. And then we carried on to Chicago. Yes, it was cold. And, okay, the Americans love the product. They looked and said, wow, great. Where do we get this? And I'm saying England. And they're saying, is that New England? And uh, no, not New England, England, you know, across the water. Oh, near London. Yeah, <laughs> near London. <clears throat> I, I did realize at that time that uh, the way to get into America, I needed a distributor. These small uh, retailers, they wouldn't want to import it. And you, it was a difficult job to import to America in those days. You have to have paperwork and everything. <clears throat> so this is 1968. <clears throat> when did I get to America? 1979, 11 long years. I had six failed attempts. One guy I was working with for four years, we still failed. But, you know, this is where luck comes in. In the late 60s, running started to become something small, but started something in America. <clears throat> By 1975, it was big. <clears throat> And, and with that, there was a magazine called Runner's World. And Runner's World had started off as a single page. And by 1975, it was a 50-page, full-color, wonderful magazine that told everybody where the next 5K, 10K, the next half marathon or marathon event was. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> the guy, Bob Anderson, who published this magazine, he thought he could tell everybody the best shoe in the world that they should buy, the number one shoe. And it was Nike. We'd expect that. It certainly wasn't Reebok, so it was Nike. Well, Phil Knight, yes, great, wonderful. We think of 350 million Americans, 10%, now we're running, that's 35 million. And if 10% of those wanted to buy that number one shoe, 3.5 million, well... Unfortunately, Phil Knight was importing the product, and to turn up the wick and to get 3.5 million, he couldn't do it. So the retail trade were up in arms, you know, what are you doing? We, we can't get the shoe, everybody wants it. However, Bob Anderson, 
in his wisdom, decided that next year we'd have another number one shoe. Again, it wasn't Reebok. We think it may have been New Balance or Brooks or Etonic or whatever. And same again. They couldn't turn up the volume needed. So Bob Anderson, third year, decided he'd change this. And he changed it to star ratings. So we can have three, four, maybe five five-star shoes, which I knew we could make a five-star shoe. To get a number one shoe, mm, difficult, because that was a bit of a lottery, that. And if you didn't pay enough advertising money to uh, Runner's World, I don't think we, we would have been anywhere near. So, but we could make a five-star shoe, at least. That's what I thought. So we're in, um, this is 1978, and we, we then sort of started to produce a shoe which I thought would be five stars. We tested this out in Edmonton at the Empire Games. Sorry, not Empire anymore, is it? It was the Commonwealth Games. <laughs> we tested these out at the Commonwealth Games and we got a shed load of medals. We did well. And so by January, February, so February 1979, I had my five-star shoe that I thought uh, at the NSGA show and we're ready to go. <clears throat> okay, along, running was so big in those days that everybody wanted to get into it. And Kmart, I don't know if you know Kmart, Kmart's a very big, big retailer in, in America. <clears throat> they came along and the guy said, we want 25,000 pairs. Okay, that's six months work for our small factory in the UK. Um, but I, we pre-thought this, if we do get a five star, we're going to need help. And... I knew a lot of people in the business, and in particular, I knew a guy who was uh, developing the sports division for Barter. I don't know if you know Barter. They used to be very big in the UK. They're still big in India and uh, Latin America, um, and they're still the biggest shoemakers in the world. So they said, yeah, <clears throat> look, Joe, no problem. We'll help. We'll, we'll, we'll make shoes for you. <clears throat> and that's good. Um, but then the guy from Kmart said, but we need a better price. Okay, Barter can make it at a better price, but not the price they want. They could do better than we could. But what they were talking about, we needed to go to Asia. We needed to go to South Korea. And again, having pre-thought all this, I had, uh, I had met up with the agents uh, for a, a large Korean factory uh, who their agent was in London. And we'd already given them samples of our five-star shoe, and they were going to make some samples. So, uh, right, that's good, 25,000 pairs. We can meet the price. Um, we can now meet the quantity. Um, that's okay, fine. But towards the end of the show, another guy came on and said, uh, you know, I'd like to have a look at your shoes. And this guy was called Paul Fireman. <clears throat> Paul Fireman, he ran a business called Boston Camping. <coughs> Excuse me. And he ran this with his, uh, his, his brother and his brother-in-law. And Boston Camping, this whole fishing rods, tents, you name it, everything, all the outdoor stuff. And, okay, but I liked him. I could talk to him. And, and I could see he was really fed up with doing what he was doing. They'd been doing it for 10 years and they were selling the same, same stuff and about the same amount every year. And uh, he said, you know, if you can get a five-star shoe, I said, Paul, come and have a look at my shoe here. This is, this is going. He said, yeah, but it's not five stars yet, is it? 
no, but you know, we we do sort of think we could do well in in the next edition, the next the sports, the next shoe edition for uh, Runners World. And Paul was okay. I'm impressed. He said, um, but he said, if you get that five star shoe, I'll become your distributor. Okay. So this is February, February 79, and the shoe edition comes out at the end of July, the August edition at the end of July. I go across to America in between and go and see Kmart, and see the guy who saw me was one of 100 buyers in this big warehouse, and I'm thinking, oh, you know, this might be 25,000 pairs of shoes, but it might be my first and last because if we don't match the requirements they have for the square footage they're going to give us, that will be it. Okay, so I go along to see Paul in Boston. And I meet his brother and his brother-in-law, nice little company. And I'm thinking, yes, this, we could bolt on nicely. Reebok would be great here. Okay, so I go back. And now we're at the last week in July, and I pick up the phone to Paul. I said, Paul, can you just... Just nip down to the uh, local kiosk. I'm sure they'll have a runner's world. Just see if we did get our five stars. Because in those days, runner's world was not available in the UK until a month too late. So we, we didn't know and nobody was telling us. Paul came back to me one hour later. Joe, Aztec, five stars. Wow. That was it. All of a sudden, we had the entry in, into America. Said, but not only that, Inca. Inca was a spike shoe we'd entered into, the, uh, uh, into this for Runner's World to check over. That got five stars. And Midas, which was a racing shoe, that got five stars. So we had three five stars to enter America. And that was our first trip we got into America. Wow. I mean, how did you feel after all of that? Um, I mean, that sounds so impressive. By that, you know, Particularly trying to take on a, a country like America... Um, what would, how did you feel and the team feel when you, you'd slaved away, you'd had failure after failure and suddenly you had that breakthrough? What was that emotional feeling like? Well, I mean, after 11 years of trying and <laughs> we, we spent a lot, a lot of time building our, our company and we, we got it fairly nice. I'd got distributors by then uh, in the UK and I could spend some time. Yeah, I mean, that, that was probably the big moment for me. The, there were other moments to come, mind you, but that was the big, that moment. Was the big moment. We're in America. Great. And uh, fabulous, you know. And our business started to grow then. And... Uh, I knew if we got into America, we would be impressing a lot of people. Because I mentioned the NSGA show. It was big, the National Sporting Goods Show in Chicago. Everybody from around the world would attend it, from every country. Because they, whatever happened in America, they wanted to see it firsthand. And then they would try and get in on that same product. So I, I knew that would be good for us. But uh, we were growing nicely. But running, running wasn't uh, the secret or wasn't the growth for, for Reebok. We, we, had in those, we had a lot of reps around the country. And we, we had a tech rep. A tech rep doesn't sell. A tech rep goes into the different stores and meets with the sales guys. And he, he just tells them what the good parts are of your product. So that's it. And this guy's Arnold Martinez. In fact, he actually tried out for the USA Olympics team. He was very, he was very good. And... Uh, his wife, his wife Frankie, she's coming home and she's full of excitement and whatever and uh, with her friends, they're going to these, uh, these classes. And Arnold said, what are you doing? 
I said, we're, we're doing aerobics. <laughs> and he said, what's aerobics? Well, she said, we, we're actually exercising to music, and it's fantastic. Oh, okay. Arnold went to the next class, and he saw the instructor. She's wearing a pair of sneakers. We think they were New Balance. Half the class are wearing the same shoe. The other half, no shoes at all. Okay, this is Arnold's light bulb moment. Why don't we make an aerobic shoe for women on a woman's last, woman's sizes, and make it in glove leather so it's so comfortable and lovely to put on? Fantastic. Great idea. So he took the next flight he could up to Boston to have a word with Paul Fireman. And he's so excited. And he's saying, Paul, aerobics, we've, we've got to do something. And Paul's saying, slow down. Slow down, Arnold. We're a running company. Why do we want to be making dancing shoes for girls? <laughs> well, why, indeed. And uh, try as he may, but uh, Paul said to him, look, keep your eye on it. And if it seems to be something we should get in involved with, okay, you know, we'll give it a try. Didn't satisfy Arnold. Arnold's, no. He went round to the back door. And he met up with Steve Liggett. Steve Liggett was our product man. He did a better job with Steve Liggett. And he got 200 pairs of sample, nice, white, cushioned, glove leather, aerobic shoes. Made on a woman's last. He took these down to Los Angeles and uh, he gave them to the instructors and he gave them to some of the leading girls and they loved them. They loved them so much, they didn't just use them for the aerobics, they went to work in them, they started to use them on the street. They were wow, fabulous. However, one problem. They were made out of glove leather. Now, glove leather is 0.7 of a millimetre thick. Not very thick at all. And when you take the top surface off, so you can put some glue on to stick the sole on, we end up with half a millimetre. That's... Not take it off. I didn't know about this at the time. I'm a shoemaker. I didn't know anything about it. They were making these out of glove leather. And uh, Arnold is a marketing man. So we're now talking about marketing over shoemaking. Fantastic, yes. But these shoes fell apart. After one month, they were just falling apart. However, the girls loved them that much. They went out and bought another pair. <laughs> ah, fantastic. Had that been anywhere else, I think, in the world, Reebok would have been dead at that moment <laughs> because they wouldn't have got out of the pair. So uh, I, I, I got to hear about this, and I'm saying, well, look, you don't make shoes out of glove leather. You make gloves out of glove leather. It doesn't work that way. Uh, you know, it's too much. Yeah, okay, right. So what did they do? We're talking about marketing again now. They lined the glove leather with nylon. Okay, nylon was strong, took the pressure. And I'm saying, you can't do that. Because leather, you use leather because it breathes. And now you've just stuck nylon on the back of it and that stops it breathing. Oh, So what did they do? They punched holes in the front of the shoe so that it would breathe. So again, marketing win again. Fantastic. And... Uh, Okay, but we were growing, growing nicely. It took us about two months to cure the problem by using what was more like garment leather. So the garment leather was thicker and it could stand 
the shoemaking uh, machinery that had, we, had to, we had to use. You could stand that. And so we were fine. So now we got the shoes right and everybody loved them. And then when Jane Fonda went out and actually bought a pair of Reeboks to use in her workout videos, that was it. The whole thing went crazy. All of Hollywood, they were all buying the shoes. It was fantastic. And we, at that point, we were a $9 million business. In the, uh, in the 60s, that was a nice size of business. However, 12 months later, we were a $30 million business. Wow. After another 12 months, a $90 million business, then a $300 million business, then a $900 million business. In under five years, we'd gone from almost zero to almost a billion. And that was fantastic. Our biggest problem, initially it was money, because you, going to the Far East, you need to provide letters of credit and stuff like that. You don't get a credit line. So we had to work out how to get a credit line. And uh, Stephen Rubin of Pentland, he had a company called Asco, and they gave us a credit line. So that was, that was great. <clears throat> but it was getting from 300 million to 900 million. If you can imagine the numbers of product that you need to do that, it's fantastic. We're talking about five million pairs a month. You know, it's, it's a lot of shoes. And uh, the factories couldn't expand like that. But we were lucky again. Nike hit a wall. Nike had been growing incredibly fast, but all of a sudden the inventory was over the top of the roof of the warehouse. They had to pull out. And they pulled out of three factories we moved in. And if that hadn't have happened, we would have probably starved our market. Other people would have come in, but no. So Reebok are now almost a billion. And uh, for the, that length of time, we'd almost forgotten how to sell shoes because we didn't need to. It was a matter of how do you make the product rather than going collecting orders. You, know, you had to stop the guys going in. No, you can't, can't get any more orders. They're just coming in faster than we can cope with. So at that time, we then went into tennis, went into basketball, went into American football, and the company grew to about 3.6 billion. And at that point, we were bigger than Adidas, and bigger than Nike, we were number one. We were the top, number one brand in the world. Fantastic. We, we'd make, so when we talk about, you know, what are the moments that you, uh, you, you remember, those fantastic moments? Yes, getting the five-star shoe, that was a fantastic achievement. That was, that was great. But becoming number one, we were the number one brand, sports brand in the world. That was really fabulous. And on top of that, I was, uh, I was hosting a pro-celebrity tennis tournament in Monte Carlo, and we had all the celebrities that you can name almost from, uh, from LA. We had Frank Sinatra, we, we had Sean Connery, we had Roger Moore, we, we had uh, uh, Jane Seymour. In fact, she became my tennis partner for a while. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't win anything, but... Uh, so Joe, would you <laughs> say it that it's, it's celebrity endorsement has had quite a big pivotal change? I mean, you mentioned Jane Fonda there, but it sounds like even with the sporting athletes earlier on, um, they've all, you know, people wearing and talking about these products that have got great engaged audiences have had quite a profound impact on the brand. Well, we, we, I mean, we're now talking about uh, business and we're talking about marketing and we're talking about influencers. And, uh, yeah, we started off using influencers like a, a lot of other 
Um, Adidas were using footballers, but it was all performance in those days. So they were using performance. Reebok were the first to move out of performance and into entertainment. And so the, the Hollywood stars were in, were in Reebok. Mm. That would began to influence. And that's moved to music. It's moved to all sorts of things now. And even now we have collabs or collaborations. And these collaborations, they, they are, well, we know now that uh, sport is influencing street. We're now fashion companies. It's uh, high fashion, everything on the street now, not everything, but the bulk of what's on the street now is influenced by sport. So this is, this is where it's gone. And uh, okay, uh, we, we did, I moved back. I, I moved, I stepped back in 1990 because we were number one. And all I was doing is flying around the world three times a year, uh, being picked up by a limousine, going to the best hotels, uh, dining at the best restaurants, uh, and meeting all these people from Hollywood. It was fantastic. What a life. It's great. But I'm thinking, this won't last forever, and it's better if I step back a bit now and you know, just take it easy. That was uh, in 1990, which I did. Yeah. yeah. What's, what, what's the value of the company now, Joe? It's hard to say what the value is now because uh, let's, let's, let's say what happened. In 2005, sometime in the early 2000s, the company seemed to plateau. It seemed to go flat. We didn't have the right person leading the company and uh, a decision was made to sell and they sold the company to Adidas. Okay, it was the wrong thing as far as Reebok were concerned, as far as Adidas were concerned, they loved it because they managed to take the NFL and the NBA licenses and take them to Adidas. You can't blame Adidas, they paid 3.5 billion for the company, that's a lot of money. And uh, really, Adidas didn't uh, do Reebok any good, but you can't expect them to be building Reebok. But Reebok survived quite nicely. Um, Adidas changed some things, but somebody in Adidas who came in said, why are you doing this with Reebok? Change it back to where it was. Change the silhouette back, because they'd changed it. Change the lettering back. So for the last five years, it's been slowly improving because people recognize the brand again. However, um, Adidas decided to sell. Last year, they decided to sell them, and by March of this year, they actually sold the company to uh, ABG, which is Authentic Brands Group. And Authentic Brands Group have 40 brands. They're a big company. However, Reebok, they paid $2.5 billion for Reebok. Um, and that's their biggest company. So Reebok is the biggest company, <clears throat> and uh, ABG, they're do things a bit differently. They're more a licensing company. I used to license the distributors in different countries, but now they take it on. They're licensing the biggest retailers because the retail business now has come together. And as we know, JD Sports, who are one of the new licensees, JD Sports now are a £7 billion company. So they've got 5,000 outlets. So Reebok are now licensed to 21 outlets, and there must be some 30,000 stores globally now that will expose the Reebok brand. They bought the company when it was doing one and a half billion in revenue. They bought, they paid 2.5 billion for it. By the end of 23, they're expecting the company to be 5 billion. Wow. By 2030, they're expecting the company to be 10 billion. And uh, 
They're progressive. They're working hard. We're already back in football in Latin America. So this is what is happening with Reebok. And uh, it's going it's, to be great. It's exciting, isn't it, really, when you hear, when you hear the, the early stories and where it's really gone to now. Um, I'm really conscious to get some, uh, some questions in from the audience because I'm sure there's going to be some. But um, can we just give um, um, Joe a big round of applause for what I think has been a really illuminating, uh, illuminating session uh, uh, this evening? Um, I just want to check to see if there's anybody that's used the slider at all. Um, oh, there we go, quite a lot. Um, right, Joe, here we go. Did you ever compare yourself to others throughout your career? If so, who and why? Well, no, I, I think I mentioned looking for white space. And anybody here who's looking to build a company... Sorry, it's not build anymore, it's scale. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah we, we built our company, now you scale your company. We learned this because we do things with... Uh, uh, with universities, we do conversation, and they're they're on the, uh, the these courses, the MBA courses. Oh no, we uh, we scale our company. We also pivot now. We don't we don't change direction. <laughs> we we now pivot. And uh, do, do we compare ourselves? Well, as I say, we look for white space because we knew that if we try to do something better than uh, Adidas uh, in 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 football, that would have been. Too difficult. You know, we we tried different things, but we we didn't punish ourselves. We just looked for that white space, and the white space came. America for me was a white space because people were running, the market was big, and aerobics was the biggest white space that we could find. So we looked for something different, and uh, our influences our influence came from from Hollywood, from entertainment, not from performance. You know, it wasn't uh, wasn't sort of. Taking on we did take a lot of athletes on, don't get me wrong, but really we knew that to find, uh, to find growth, scale, to scale, we needed to find uh, new ways, new places, to innovate. You know, I, uh, I go to America quite a lot now, and we're talking about the book. We haven't mentioned much about the book, you know, but... Uh, it's, we, it's, we, coming, we, it's coming, we, isn't it? We, yeah, we can come <laughs> to the book, yes, we can come to the book, because it does uh, give much more uh, insight into what we did as Reebok. But uh, I go to America, and uh, now a lot of Americans are in late 40s, early 50s. What do they remember? Apart from the women who remember aerobics, the guys remember the pump. The pump was fantastic. And they all remember it. And, and these guys said, I was a kid at the time, and everybody in, everybody in school, we all wanted the pump, but it was so expensive. And we'd say, Mom, Mom, Dad, Dad, the one... No, you can't have those. Go and get a pair of Converse. They're too expensive. Uh, so they had to get a job. <laughs> they had to deliver newspapers, do whatever to, to get a job so they could get a, a pair of Reebok uh, pump. And uh, I don't know if anybody here, but in America, it's, it's one of the best advertisements that ever happened. D. Brown, he, he was a basketball player. And he was stood on the center line. And this was just a, a competition where they dunked the ball. And he dunked the ball from the halfway line, then bent down and pumped up his shoes. And everybody, everybody remembers that advert. So, uh, you know, we, we were not looking uh, to do things uh, to beat our competitors. Uh, we, we were looking to find space. And, and I think anybody who has a business today, uh, yeah, you know, you, you can follow other people. But if you really want to scale your business, look for the white space. Look for that little bit of difference. It doesn't need to be a big thing, but it, 
it can make a big difference to your business. Yeah, well, wise words there. Um, so another question we've got is, who in your life started the entrepreneurial spirit um, in yourself? Well, people ask me, uh, are you born an entrepreneur? Or can you become an entrepreneur? Can you learn? For me, you're either born an entrepreneur or not, because an entrepreneur is an optimist. So either you're born optimistic or not. And if you're born pessimistic or indifferent, you'll find it difficult, because <clears throat> as an entrepreneur, to get on in life, you've got to take risks. Not ridiculous risks. You're not gambling, but you are taking risks. And you've got to be willing to think, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, 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 I, 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 want, to, I want to do that. And you may fail. But if you do fail, it, that's not the end. That's just a lesson. That's just a beginning. Wow, yeah, didn't get that right, did I? You know, and you pick yourself up. And there's, there's another job out there. There's something else. So, but you've learned a lesson. You've learned what's better next. So an entrepreneur, you've got to be optimistic. You really have to be optimistic. And, yeah, because every day is not a good day. Some of those days are really, you know, they, they, they really are a trial. But you come out of it and you think, yeah, we, we, you know, we had to change our name. We had to change our silhouette. And we did that because we, we looked at these problems as an opportunity. So that's what you've got to be. Is, and an optimist, I think you're born. No, I, I, wise words again. Um, and, and you've obviously proved that when you went to America and how tough, it, that, tough that was. And in fact, the next question sort of alludes to that. What advice do you have for other business owners for when times are hard? And we may be facing a more challenging period now. Um, what advice would you give to them? Well, I think you can look at uh, COVID as being a, a, one of the most terrible experiences that most people have been through. And yet, like with world wars, you know, um, necessity is the mother of invention. And that occurred. We now have Zoom. You know, these things come out of problems. Somebody finds an answer. So, okay, we may not all be able to find the answer to the problem, but... If you, if you just think as an optimist, what am I, how can I make the changes? You, you've got to be, you've got to be optimistic. You've got to look for that difference. You've, you've, got to, you've got to pivot. Because if what you're doing isn't working anymore, you've got to look for something different. And uh, it's easy for me to say that. But to be honest, you know, life isn't that easy that you can just pick something up. You've got to look hard. And you've got to work hard for it. But if you do, and like I say, you look at Zoom now, I mean, at Reebok, we went to Reebok, and nobody's working there anymore. And, and when, when they are in, they're sitting in their office and they Zoom each other. Yes. <laughs> what, from the office? From the office, yeah. They don't bother meeting anymore. They just Zoom. Yeah, so, you know, life has changed. Accept it. Yeah, OK. Yeah. Um, what, what Reebok product do you think has influenced popular culture uh, the most and why? Well, at the most, what happened is that uh, once Reebok started to use soft leather, this went into all the sports, into, uh, <clears throat> into tennis. In tennis in particular, we, uh, it was Paul Feynman's idea, or at least his advertising agent's idea. They decided that uh, they would advertise the nice, soft uh, tennis shoes. And... Uh, it was, if you don't believe these are the best tennis shoes you've ever worn, uh, we'll, we'll give you a money back and a can of balls. And the strap line was, Reebok puts their balls on the line. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And, and the biggest influence I think we had was actually introducing soft leather so that people didn't need to break the shoes in. A lot of shoes, a lot of sports shoes in particular, you know, you'd almost worn them out before, before it actually became comfortable. Well, as now, and a lot of people know now, because a lot of people are walking around in a nice, soft, I mean, I do now, in so much easier, that uh, you don't have to break the shoes in. So I think the soft leather and that, uh, that wonderful comfort and cushioning re-brought brought that uh, to the sports business. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, what was the tipping point um, that made you make the decision to sell the business? Well, I, th I think... I mean, how, how many of you had heard of Joe Foster before tonight? Ooh, One, two, two maybe, two, maybe, maybe three. three. three Not many. For a secret. Um, <laughs> well, for me, it wasn't a question of selling Joe Foster. It was a matter of selling Reebok. Reebok was the name. We wanted success. We were making a brand. You know, we go to these universities and they've got the NBA students and they say, Joe, what was your exit plan? Exit plan? We didn't have an exit plan. Why? No. It's exit plans. Why is it exit plans? Because as a business in the 1950s, 1960s, we were looking for money. We needed money. We were product looking for money. Today, it's money looking for products. There are so many ways that you can obtain money, but they're looking for products. And uh, so in order to get put money in that product, they want to know its exit plan because they want to be able to put the money in and get the money out, so they, they need that. In my day, that didn't happen. You know, we, uh, we just wanted to grow the company. So when it comes to saying, did you know Joe Foster? No, because as far as I was concerned, how far can we take this company? And there comes a time when I knew that in order for us to really take advantage of the opportunities, I had to sell the company. I had to let people in. And so letting people in allowed Reebok to become number one. And you know, people said, do you regret that? And I said, we became number one. You know, what's to regret? And uh, that was my philosophy. You know, okay, maybe I could have made an awful lot more money, or maybe Reebok would have never made what it made. Maybe nobody would know of Reebok if I hadn't made that decision. So many CEOs have gone in Reebok, but I'm still a founder. They can't get rid of me. <laughs> it's the coolest job, actually, isn't it? Um, how was your relationship with Phil Knight? Um, would you say that you had a Steve Jobs and Bill Gates dynamic? Simply, I never met him. I don't know. I never met him. That, <laughs> right, that, 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 is, that is still to happen. <clears throat> Paul Feynman met him because he was on the same market. But, of course, I was, I was global. He was just USA. Somebody else says here, what were your friends doing when you were growing Reebok? Did you ever have a fear of missing out? Well, I think my friends were making money. Um, I was just spending a lot of time trying to make money and trying to develop a brand. Um, and I don't think anybody envied us until, of course, the time came when we did breakthrough, then, mm, that, you know, those, those things just happen at one time, but, God, the amount of time you spend getting there, yeah. the effort you spend getting there, and, and that's, we come back to an entrepreneur, we come back to the energy you need, you come back to the enthusiasm, and, and, and back to being an optimist. Mm. You've just got to keep on smiling, 
not every day is a good day, but when people say, you know, one of the most important things about running a business and growing a business, sorry, scaling a business like that, um, and I say having fun. That's the most important. And the second most important is having more fun. And the third, much more fun. So just have fun. And if you're having fun, you know, you'll probably be very successful. But make sure that you don't, don't try and make something happen that shouldn't happen. You know, that's the time to pivot. That's the time to change whatever you're doing. Yeah. yeah, no, I agree. Um, highest grossing shoe? I, I would think that was the aerobics uh, freestyle because that was the one that really, uh, really made it. It was a fabulous shoe. It, it took a while to get into Europe because Europe were not used to spend, sorry, women in Europe were not used to spending so much money on, on a sports shoe. Heels, yeah, but a sports shoe, no. And I think there's a lot of opposition. But in America, it didn't matter. This is why one of the reasons, if you want to expand, sorry, scale your business, if you want to do that, America's a good place to look at. And it's a good, good place because money isn't a problem. If you've got a good product, you will sell it. And uh, that's the big lesson I learned. And anybody who asks me about where should we go next, America. <laughs> Try America. <laughs> um, what would have happened to Reebok if your team member hadn't taken up the class with his wife? <laughs> hadn't taken up? T t taking up the class with his wife. The aerobics class. Oh, right, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, you know, when we try and talk about changing history, it's... Um, <laughs> It's one of those things that there's no answer to. We, you know, it happened. It happened. I mean, who, who can forecast what would have happened if it hadn't? It, you know, it's like if I hadn't decided that, yeah, we need to let people in the company because we need the money. You know, you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't take the opportunity. The opportunity came along. Um, Adidas and uh, Nike, they thought, no, no, it's, it's going to be a fad list. You know, there's no such thing as a woman's sports brand. You know, it's all male, sweaty. And that's what everybody thought about this, that with, with Reebok. Reebok, we're a small running company. We're not known nationally or globally. Uh, so when Reebok started making aerobics, we became a woman's shoe. We became a woman's company. Mm. And that made the difference. You know, the women owned Reebok. That was, they loved it. It was great. And we didn't have the problem if it's a problem that Nike and Adidas had of being male, sweaty. No, this, this was owned by women. So, you know, yes, what would have happened? I don't know. Maybe we'd have found a different white space. But who, who knows? You know, when, when you found something and you've got it, we found it. Yeah. You know, we don't want to go back and think if we hadn't found it, why, why waste our time? What's the split at the moment between um, men and women in terms of um, shoes sold? Well, I, I think I think when you talk about sports footwear, it's, it's got to be the majority has got to be men. Um, but I, I think women are finding a different place in in sport these days, <clears throat> and I think it's becoming accepted. Um, things 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 do change, and, uh, and I, I I really don't know why Reebok didn't uh, didn't take out women's football, which is big in America. It's now soccer, of course, in America, uh, and. Soccer in America is bigger than the men's game. Um, it's a non-contact sport. 
and uh, and it's grown. But uh, what's the split? Well, I I don't know. I think now that uh, now that everything's on the street and everything's fashion, you you're probably not uh, probably not far from fifty fifty now. Is it because oh, okay. <clears throat> when you when you really think everybody. Even Julie's wearing... She's not wearing uh, Reebok today, but she's wearing a, a sports-influenced product. But you are wearing a Reebok today. I'm wearing and, Reebok and, today. And they've got a personalised um, branding Listen, on as well yeah. with, his, with Joe's name on. It's pretty cool, so you've got to go yeah. and they, take a picture got, of that they, later. They've got my initials on, yes. <laughs> you've got their initials, yeah. yeah. And, and 1895, which, uh, is, yeah, when, which is... the which is the, when it started, yeah. 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 Which is when Grandfather invented his spike running shoe. So we... we in America, they, they think that's great, fantastic, yeah. that uh, we've got a history that goes back to 1895. It didn't happen quickly. It took a long time for them to realise that, uh, yeah, there's some value in tradition. Mm. And, I, I, uh, I've yeah. got to finish with, and somebody's asked the question, but I think a lot of us would love to know, who, you know, you're obviously a driven and very successful entrepreneur, but who has inspired you? Well, I think when when we became entrepreneurs or we left the family company, what we needed uh, we needed a job <laughs> because we could see the one that we were in was going to disappear. Um, but I, I think then we come back to DNA, and uh, whilst I believe my father and uh, my uncle didn't inherit grandfather's DNA, I think somewhere that DNA got straight through, and I probably have that DNA because I am an optimist. And I, I believe in human nature, even though in many occasions you get let down by humans. But I still believe it. I'm still happy to meet people and believe that they're good people. And, uh, you know, so where does it come from? I think, again, you're born with it. I think it's something that uh, you have. And it's difficult to try to learn. I think it's something that you either have it, you're either an optimist and you, you know, you're really ready to take the world on. Okay. I can speak now because we were successful. <laughs> I, I guess if we'd have failed, no, we, we never failed. How could we fail? No. You'd have just learned, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we couldn't fail. Yeah. It had to happen. So Joe Foster, the eternal optimist, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Redefined podcast. We want to bring you the best stories from the top change makers across the globe. To make that possible, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you are listening and leave a comment or review. It really is that simple. Thank you again for listening and we'll see you for the next episode.